Good morning. <laughs> uh, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. I'd really like to hear at least one Bible open. Everybody's like, but I'd like to, like to hear. There's one. I, I hear one. A two, two, three. All right, four. There it is. It's a Bible. I trust you. You're not just scrolling Facebook when you're, you know. <laughs> okay, last week was a one-off. Maybe that's why we're uh, running so low today. Maybe the one-off scared people off. I don't know. Um, but uh, I'm just kidding. A lot of people are sick. But last week was a one-off uh, because I felt led to discuss something different that was very important. Um, so we were not in Acts 15 last week. But um, the previous week, we examined uh, the first two verses of this chapter, and we talked about the true biblical gospel versus several false gospels that have affected God's church in, in many unfortunate ways. Um, some falsehoods are so antithetical to the true gospel that, that they don't just distract from it. They, they actively, specifically contradict it, and those things are like they can't be held simultaneously. You can't believe in the gospel and also believe that you're saved by your works, for instance. Uh, what we're going to read about today and next Sunday is the first major church council that was held to combat a particular heresy. So while the kids, if you're, any kids are doing this, if you're finding these five uh, bingo pictures here, we're going to do a quick recap. Um, this heresy, this dangerous false teaching was introduced to the early church by men called Judaizers. And they taught that a person couldn't be a Christian without essentially first converting to Judaism. And this is probably the first major challenge to the biblical gospel that the early church had to deal with. Something the apostles, they simply could not allow it to spread. And so Paul and Barnabas left Antioch, and they headed for Jerusalem because they wanted to talk to the rest of the, of the apostles and the, the elders there and decide uh, what to do about this false teaching. So that's kind of the background here of, um, of today's text, and that way hopefully we'll all be up to speed. Have you found it? Those of you that are in your Bibles, you found it? Are you there? If you're not there, raise your hand. <laughs> okay, thanks. Everybody, what, was it the coffee? Did we not make coffee strong enough? Is it? All right, so be forewarned. Uh, this is not a short passage. So instead of reading it all the way through and then kind of going back over it like we normally would do, we're, we're just going to read through it as we go, okay? And we're, we're going to be looking uh, for the merging of both an undefiled gospel and a Christian unity. Okay, I think too often, especially in the modern, and, and we might even refer to now the, the, the postmodern age, we see churches and denominations that neglect gospel purity for the sake of unity, and that is a terrible thing to do. Okay, the, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe, and it must never be sacrificed on the altar of unity. We've discussed before that the Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel, the good news, as Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose from the dead. All of this is scripture foretold, and it was seen by eyewitnesses. That's out of Acts 15, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and following. But we've also learned that a sticking point for many people is what the gospel means. What, what are the ramifications of the fact that Christ died for our sins? What did he accomplish in this act of dying for our sins? And why is it so important? Why was it necessary? So 
Through today's text, we're, we're going to get a clearer understanding, I think, of the good news and the correct way to receive it. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to preach your word to your people, Lord. Uh, I pray for um, all of us to receive your word. Father, I thank you for um, the open and, and prepared hearts that are here, and ask that each of us be good soil, Father. And also for those watching uh, from home online right now, I uh, just ask that they are ready to receive the word that you, uh, that you have implanted in us. Let it receive it humbly, as James writes. Um, we thank you, God, for this opportunity. We pray that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they, that, that's Paul and Barnabas, passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Uh, there's a side note. Wherever, um, whenever the apostles share the story of Gentiles being included in God's people, that's, that's the typical reaction. It's usually joy, right? Uh, so if you're a Christian, you ought to be, your reaction when you learn that someone has converted ought to be joy. It should bring you joy when a, a wicked man or a wicked woman experiences the new birth that accompanies repentance and faith. No matter how wickedly they've lived, we should be thankful to see it. Don't be disappointed, friends, that God is merciful enough to forgive someone else, even if their crimes against him are maybe more evident than yours. Because remember, God is given the most honor when he converts the most heinous of sinners. And Paul says, I am the chief, right? Remember who he was. We talked about it last week. He was a man who tortured, murdered, and imprisoned Christians. And look what God did with him. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And this too, this is a very common theme in the book of Acts. Whenever Christians get together, they seem to love sharing their testimonies about God's goodness. I think that maybe that's something we've talked about this in the past few months. It's something that maybe we've kind of fallen out of favor a little bit with in the church is sharing testimonies. I think we should do it more often. It's a really good thing for us. Uh, for, for people to, to be encouraged, uh, you know, really, in the Bible, I don't know if you've noticed this, you don't see a lot of small talk. You know what I mean? Like, they don't usually just sit around conversing about the weather. I mean, they talk about the things that matter. Now, of course, they're not going to record every little thing. But we don't see a lot of small talk in the Bible. There's just too much important stuff to talk about. And I want us to be encouraged by that because we really ought to be regularly sharing with one another what it is that God's doing in our lives. It's encouraging to us. Anyway, um, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, it's interesting because he calls them believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now this right here is the main bone of contention okay, that, that brought Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem. The Judaizers, that, that was this, this group from the sect of the Pharisees, they were insisting that the Gentiles essentially become Jews first in order to become Christians. And they, they wanted these Gentiles to submit to, first to circumcision, and then to the rest of God's law, uh, as, as it's captured basically in Exodus through Deuteronomy, and they called that the law of Moses. And to be fair, under the, the old covenant, they had a precedent 
for, for circumcising foreigners and slaves, for instance, in order for them to be able to eat the Passover meal. Uh, but the new covenant is different. And while Paul and Barnabas understood that, these Pharisees or these, these Pharisees who had become believers were struggling with this, this legalism that they were still having some of their hope in. And in fact, if you recall from verse 1, they were initially saying, and it looks like they, they backed down from that to some extent here, but they were initially saying that a man could not be saved unless he was circumcised. And, you know, well, obviously that needed to be either validated or shot down, right? I mean, that's kind of a big deal to make that statement. So that's why Luke says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And I think it's kind of neat that they had, they said they had the elders. It wasn't just, you know, the 11 apostles. They didn't just say, hey, look, y'all, we're the guys that Jesus trusted, you know, to get everything right. So the rest of y'all can just hush. Like, they didn't do that. They involved all these, these other disciples who'd proven their mettle, you know, and, and, and had become elders. They wanted them to join in the discussion. They wanted this to be uh, kind of a consensus. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Who's he talking about? Cornelius, thank you. Thanks, Dad. I have a ringer in the audience today. <laughs> Cornelius and his entire household. And God, who knows the heart, remember this is unlike us, right? God, God can tell who actually has receptivity to the gospel. You know, one could even argue that he specifically provides it. Um, but anyway, God who knows the heart bore witness to them as being saved by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Remember, Peter said this back in Acts chapter 11. He said before that the Spirit fell on the Gentiles just as on us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, folks, I can tell you, and, and if you studied any of the, the history of Acts, you probably know that this would have been downright scandalous to some of those Jews who maybe never heard this story before yet. You know, they were still, they'd been brought up in these more legalistic sects, uh, like, like the Pharisees. And so uh, they would have been shocked, really, to think that God would accept an uncircumcised Gentile, but Peter, Peter knew it to be true from personal experience. And there are a couple of, I think, super important things here that we ought to draw our attention to. First of all, this Holy Spirit, okay, that, that fell on the Jews at the beginning of the church, we see this in Acts chapter 2, same Holy Spirit that fell on the Gentiles when God flung open the doors to them too. And friends, we should do well to remember that all believers, and by that I mean all born-again Christians, have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us. It's not a, a different spirit in one group from another. You know, and since Romans 8 tells us anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Christ, it's safe to say that all those who belong to Christ do have the Holy Spirit. There, there's a, a tremendous important, irrevocable bond that all true Christians have with one another. And, and I, I think, you know, it, if, we, if we all have it, it should, should go without saying maybe that if all Christians have it, any two Christians have it too. Right? Is that fair to say? 
Okay, and I say that last part as a reminder, friends, uh, that none of, us, none of us have a biblical excuse to reject another believer due to personal conflict. You know, what you both have in common is far greater than what divides you. Anyway, uh, Scripture shows us here and elsewhere, for instance, in James chapter 2, that it is a sin to show favoritism based on externals. So I want you to just bear this in mind. If a person has been born again by the Holy Spirit, by grace through faith, they are your brother or sister. Despite their skin color, their ethnicity, their current philosophy, their affiliations, they're your brother or sister if you both have the Spirit of God living in you. And so you're one in spirit. And that is a real kind of unity. Okay, It's not based on association. It's based on communion with one another of the same Spirit. One God, one Father who's above all, through all and in all. One faith, one baptism. You know, we, we, are, we are connected intimately with people we've never met because we have the same Spirit. We also see an important truth mentioned by Peter in this passage, and that's for believers. We should know that our hearts are cleansed by faith. What is faith? We've talked about this a little bit. Biblically speaking, when we talk about saving faith, because you see that there's a a very heavily air-quoted faith that doesn't save in James chapter 2. That's James chapter 2. That's twice in one, one sermon. There. We see what is faith. It is belief that leads to action. It's belief. It's a trust that begets obedience inevitably. It's not just a... It, it, look, it's a heart attitude. It's not just a mental checkbox. You know, we think about sometimes faith as just giving mental assent. You go, okay, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Check. I believe, you know, it, so Satan does too, right? James 2.19, even the demons believe. They're scared to death. And if that's the only kind of belief you have, you should be scared to death too. Because it has to go from here to here. We know what the Bible says about faith. It says it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Same book, which is Hebrews, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And it, it, it's widely understood, I think, at least in Protestant circles, that, that faith is, is the, here's that word, sine qua non, right, of justification. It is the one thing, the one absolutely necessary thing of justification. Faith must be present in order for God to justify us, in order for him to credit the righteousness of Christ to us. Faith is the one thing we must have. But it is also the way in which our hearts are cleansed in real time, so to speak. You know, meaning we are sanctified by faith as well because we act in faith. And as we do that, God gives us more, more grace. And we'll talk about grace in a bit, um, but, but just picture this for now. If grace is a river, faith is the riverbed. Does that make sense? And God, who is the source of all good things, he pours his grace on us, and he pours it through us 
into and onto others as a result of faith working in love. I, I, like, that, I like that image. But anyway, uh, Peter's point is that the Gentiles, the Gentiles have the same situation as the Jews when it comes to salvation. It's not the law that saves, but grace through faith. And Peter elaborates by saying, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And it's a good question, you know. It's, do you really want to put God to the test by going against his will, first of all? Hopefully not. Okay. He says, and he's alluding to the fact that the Jews have been unsuccessful at keeping the law. Do we really want to make the Gentiles do something we can't do? He's asking. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. I think it's really interesting that Peter says it in this way. Because it seems to me like he could have said, we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as we will. But he reverses that order. And maybe he's trying to remind these Jewish legalists that, that no one is justified by obeying the law. Because guess what? It's impossible. You can't fully, successfully obey the law. It's not possible for anyone other than Jesus Christ himself to live a, pers- a, a perfectly sinless life and, and, you know, from start to finish. Because he, he is the only one. He, we have the inherent presence of sin in us and the inevitability of sinning. And if we look in Scripture, we see the law wasn't even given to the Jews to be their mode of salvation. That's where so many of them miss the mark. George Whitfield once said, uh, trying to get into heaven on your own power is like trying to climb to the moon on a rope made of sand. I think it's a good analogy. It can't be done. So if, if that's the case, if we can't be saved by following the law, then why have the law? Well, Paul has a, a wonderful spirit-led perspective on this in Romans 3. We're going to look there for guidance. Starting in verse 19, the apostle wrote, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And in case you didn't catch that, he's saying the law, the law serves to show us how flawed we are and how incapable we are of living according to God's perfect standard, okay? For by works of the law, he says, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's kind of depressing. It says, we're given these commands to show us that we can't follow them, And and if we can't follow them, then we can't be good enough for God? How is that even fair? Well, see, he doesn't stop there, okay? But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here we're reminded that our righteousness in the sight of God, the the reason that God sees us as perfect instead of as the sinful beings that we are, is that we have faith in his son, whom he sent to pay the price for our sins. Hence, we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. This is a truth 
that cannot be overemphasized. Every believer is saved by the grace of Christ. It's what He did that rescues us, not anything we can do. Paul continues in Romans 3. There is no distinction, he says, for all have sinned and fall short. that's, That's infinitive tense, meaning we all fall short all the time of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Some translations put free gift in case you didn't catch gift, right? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a wonderful big church word. It means an appeasing sacrifice. A propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's the key, guys. Our our, our salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus. An important aspect of, of faith is understanding who Jesus is and what God did through him. You know, we talk about that a lot. That's that's the gist of the gospel, who Jesus is and what God did through him on the cross and by raising him from the dead. And it reveals the Father's heart too. See, Paul, Paul continues. This, he's talking about the sacrificial death of Christ, was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. That's the whole sacrificial arrangement in the Old Testament. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just, I'm putting that word both in there, okay, because I need to make sure we're all on the same page here, both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And if you're not real familiar with propitiation and atonement and all that, you might, I don't really understand this. See, here's the thing. A, a quote, just God, end quote, cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He can't, because that would be unjust. And if a just God can't allow sin to go unpunished, he must punish sin. So he revealed his justice by punishing sins in the crushing death of Jesus. And then he reveals his mercy by rewarding sinners through Christ's life. We can't earn his favor in this. (laughs) We can only be grateful that he chose to do it this way. And then tying that back into Acts 15, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. He says, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. So church, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians have the same God. Bear in mind, I said Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians have the same God, worship the same Savior, and are saved in the same way. By grace, through faith. Every Christian, everywhere, through all time, is saved in the same way. By God's grace, through faith. So Peter finishes his speech. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related signs and wonders God had done 
through them among the Gentiles. And it doesn't specify here, but I think we could probably assume that Paul maybe shared a little bit of his Romans 3 thoughts here, you know, because Paul doesn't tend to hold things back. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Quick word on James. Um, I'll probably be corrected in just a minute here. This is either James the Lesser, or uh, which not John's brother, he'd already been murdered, okay? Or it was Jesus' brother James. Which is it? I'm asking you, Dad. You think it's Jesus' half-brother James? Okay. It's scholars differ. So that scholar thinks it was Jesus' half-brother James. I tend to usually think he's right about things, but um, remember that, kids. Dad tends to be right. Anyway, um, but either way, okay, it's evident by his behavior here and by the respect that he's given that James was considered a VIP in the church at Jerusalem. Okay, he's, he's mentioned elsewhere uh, in Scripture, I think by Peter, he's, he's called, or with Peter, Paul says James and, and Peter, or he calls him Cephas, which, same thing, are pillars in the church. And James also, he supposedly had a nickname, you may have heard this, Camel Knees. You ever heard this? Apparently James had the nickname Camel Knees, and the reason was that he, he habitually prayed while kneeling, and he did it so often he developed really thick, rough calluses on his knees. So anyway, this is someone that, that the church considered to be wise and mature, and his, his counsel was highly valued, okay? And he says this, Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Yep. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the, temple, the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And this is pretty neat here. You know, James is actually quoting from two different passages in Amos. He's quoting from, I believe, chapter 11 and chapter 9. Um, But he's applying those scriptures to this new context in a way that's guided by the Holy Spirit. You know, there, there are actually a lot, of, a lot of different scriptures he could have quoted here, a lot of passages to make the same point. Because as big as, as the Israelites were about, you know, being God's people, um, there are an awful lot of passages in the Old Testament that point toward a huge influx of Gentiles into God's kingdom. Lots of them. Lots of scriptures. In fact, pretty much any time you come across the English word nations... In the Old Testament, it's probably ethnoi in the the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, which means peoples or nations. It's translated Gentiles in the New Testament. So, So all along, okay, all along, God has been telegraphing the fact that he's planning to go outside the biological nation of Israel and extend his salvation to the world. He's been talking about this for hundreds, even thousands of years. Anyway, let's get to James's decision. He says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Uh, I like how he says we should not trouble 
any of those Gentiles who turn to God. I think sometimes historically, godly Christians, well-meaning, well-intended, godly people will bring the gospel into a new environment, you know, which is a great thing. That's what we're supposed to do. But then we also bring other aspects of our culture in that aren't necessarily scriptural and we try to push those on people. And I'm, I'm not going to go into detail on that this week. I'm going to talk about it more next week, so just be advised. Next week we're going to talk about your freedom in Christ. Um, but anyway, there, there, are clearly, there are clearly certain behaviors in Scripture that are expected of Christians, okay? And we see this in multiple sections of the New Testament. One of my favorites is Ephesians roughly 4.17 through um, about the middle of 5. Also, Romans 12 is another great one. Many places in Scripture that give us multiple instructions on how to be godly people. Um, but the confusing part, I think, for, for many of the Jewish Christians was that there's a lot of overlap between the Old Testament law of Moses and the New Covenant morality. In other words, some of the Old Testament law was moral law as opposed to ceremonial or sacrificial law. And the moral law is what we see upheld and repeated in the New Testament. And if you, if you look, you'll see, generally speaking, the ceremonial and the sacrificial law had a lot to do with externals. The moral law has to do with how your internal manifests. Anyway, we'll talk about that some other time. But, um, but this is still really early in the church, and they're still having to pray through this stuff. Like, they're still trying to work this out, Okay. But apparently most of the Gentile believers were already trying to live according to what the apostles were teaching, which is what Jesus taught, right? Because he said, when you make disciples, what do you do? You baptize them in the name of who? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and do what? Teach them to do what? To obey what? All things that Christ commanded them. Sometimes we forget that. We say, and, and teach them everything Christ commanded. No, teach them to obey everything Christ commanded. And so they're teaching what Jesus taught. The Gentiles understood this, and they were, they were going along with, uh, with most of what they were supposed to be going along with already. However, there are a few areas that, of the law that the Jewish Christians felt the Gentiles should, should adhere to or submit to for a couple of reasons. We're going to discuss those shortly, but um, for now, we're going to look at the four things that James mentions, okay? They are things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, what has been strangled, and blood. Now, there is a, a very important distinction that I think we need to make here. Uh, while the Gentiles are commanded to abstain from all four of these things, it appears that at least one of them is a serious violation of moral law, while at least one of the others seems to be a concession for the sake of the Jews. And that raises eyebrows, Right? you go, well, why are they mentioned the same way? Well, that actually gets clarified as we read through the New Testament. But another important thing to consider is all four of these things were connected to the old patterns of ritualistic heathen worship that the Gentiles were being converted out of. Since Gentiles, they were going to be worshiping with and fellowshipping with Jews and vice versa, right? There were certain things that Gentiles did that could have jeopardized their faith and others that that, that would have been just drastically offensive to the Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. And so let's quickly look at those four things the Gentiles were being told to stay away from. Uh, what has been strangled and blood are actually connected. Um, animals that aren't bled when they're killed, 
maintain a lot of blood in their meat. And blood, whether it's uh, eaten in the meat or whether it's drunk separately, um, that wasn't a problem for some of these pagans. You know, some of them actually drank blood in some of their, their heathen worship. Some of them, they had no problem with strangling an animal because they felt like that kept the meat. When the meat was bloody, they thought it tasted better. Um, but, uh, but it was against the law for the Jews. And, and the idea that, uh, that ingesting blood was a taboo, by the way, that didn't start with Moses. That was actually, that was a law given to Noah more than a thousand years before Moses. You know, when Noah and his family got off the ark, God gave them permission, which is interesting because then later on he gives a different law to the Jews, but he gave them permission to eat any animal they chose. But he said, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. Later in, I believe it's Leviticus, he says, do not eat the blood because the blood is the life. So apparently there's a natural moral law that existed prior to the law of Moses with regard to ingesting blood. Now, I'm not sure if that applies today. There's different opinions on that. Some people think it's fine to have blood pudding and blood sausage. I think that's disgusting, <laughs> personally. Um, but I think we probably should stay away from eating blood. Um, but anyway, we're, that's, that's a whole other thing. Either way, it, it was either a sin or it was considered so offensive to the Jews that the Gentiles were told not to eat meat with the blood in it and not to drink blood. So, what about things polluted by idols and sexual immorality? Here's something, I'm, I'm going to say this as clearly as possible. If you profess to be a Christian, you must abstain from sexual immorality and adultery. Excuse me, and idolatry, but adultery too. <laughs> That's part of sexual immorality. You must abstain. Now the word, the word uh, sexual sin, the word that's there literally means fornication. It was used to refer to any type of extramarital sex and idolatry. We have to refrain from those. Why? Because of the horrifying ramifications of indulging unrepentantly in these sins. Paul says in Ephesians 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's pretty straightforward. Listen, if you are a professing Christian, and you are sexually active outside of the covenant relationship of marriage, I urge you to repent. Repent and turn to God and ask forgiveness and seek a life of purity. You know, even, even if you're engaged to be married, exercise self-control and wait for the official seal on your relationship because God is honored by this. As for idolatry, in the, in the Ephesians context, Paul is referring to covetousness. Greed, you know, that, that means wanting something that doesn't belong to you. That's idolatry, according to Scripture. Uh, maybe it's putting your desire in a person or a thing instead of your desire being for the Lord. Uh, but whatever the case is, it's serious. And of course, you know, the, the pagan cultures that the Gentiles belonged to actually worshipped literal idols, most of them. 
And many Greeks even had temple prostitutes, and, and so sexual immorality was practiced as a part of their worship. It was a public thing. So it was clear to the Jewish Christians, okay, that sexual immorality was a non-negotiable. The Gentiles had to stop it. But what about things polluted by idols? I got a confession to make here, and that's, I took us down a path as though James was talking about idolatry, but we see in next week's text he really wasn't being that, that general. He was being more specific. In fact, specifically, he was talking about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, this is an instance where the New Testament reveals that this was not a moral imperative in the same way that avoiding sexual immorality is a moral imperative. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you, if you want to flip there, that's great, because that's where we're going to pretty much wrap up today. So if you want to go to 1 Corinthians 10, um, we're going to start in verse 23, and just let you know, speaking, speaking to a church, this is Paul writing to a church that's full of, of Gentile Christians, many of whom were very immature. And the apostle writes, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, which is, sets the tone for what's going to come next. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If you read that and you think about Acts 15, you might be like, wait, what? <laughs> I thought we were told not to eat meat. That's been polluted by being offered to idols. If eating meat that's been offered to idols is a big enough deal, the Gentiles are instructed to avoid it, then isn't it always wrong? You know, that's the question that you want to ask, right? Does it make sense that they would, you know, receive this command that wasn't based in objective truth? And here's the thing, the short answer is no. There is objective truth in this command. And it's not at all violated by Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians, okay? The objective truth is that God made meat, meat is neat, and it's for us to eat, okay? That is the objective truth, and it won't make a bit of difference if it's been offered to an idol, because an idol's not really a god anyway, and there's more on that next week. But, but it's also an objective truth that we are called to love our brother or sister enough to do what we can to prevent harming their conscience. Paul goes on. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. You know, question, does that seem fair? Well, Paul continues, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of, of that for which I give thanks? In other words, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, why should I be constrained by someone else's sense of right or wrong? if it's not truly a moral issue. But then he explains why. Paul asks a lot of uh, leading and rhetorical questions. He explains why, starting with a wonderful and famous verse that is nonetheless often pulled out of context. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But then he goes on, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks 
or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Got to bear in mind, there are times where Paul allowed a lot of things to slide for the sake of his, his audience, and there are other times where he didn't let anything slide because it was super important, like in Galatians 1.10, right? When he talks about in the two verses prior, he says, if anybody... Even an angel from heaven gives you a different gospel than the one that we preached to you. Let he be, he, him be eternally condemned. And he goes right from that into saying, am I here to please man or please God? He says, if I was trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. But then here he goes, and yet. Because this is not a, an issue of, of absolute importance. He says, and yet I do what I can to please everyone. There's another place where he actually says, I become all things to all men. In order that I may win some so that they may be saved. So, so what, he's, what he's saying is we abstain from something not because it's wrong for us to partake, but because it could harm the conscience of, of either a current or a potential believer, a, a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ who believes that it's wrong. Okay, And if that harm to their conscience is avoidable, then we should avoid it. As Christians... Um, particularly in dealing with other Christians and with those who are exploring the faith, we should strive to avoid whatever causes unnecessary offense. And this is a key way to preserve unity in the body. Remember, the gospel purity is the most important thing because it is the gospel that's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And so if we have people who are disagreeing over the gospel, that's a reason to break unity. But if you can have unity at the cost of almost anything except the absolute truth of the gospel, do what you can to have unity because we all have the same spirit. But note that there's two key words there in that subpoint. The first one is strive, meaning try really hard. And the second word is un needed. We can try hard to, to avoid offending someone needlessly and still fail, right? Because some folks are harder to please than others, right? You ever heard the term EMG, extra measure of grace? I'm an EMG. Some of y'all are, you know? We need, to, we need to have an extra measure of grace for one another. It's not on you, though, if you try to please someone and they just won't be pleased. It's not on you. And there are times, there may be, and there probably are times, where the gospel is at stake or someone's well-being is at stake. And in those cases, those circumstances might require offending someone for the sake of God's honor or for the sake of their own spiritual health. And we're going to delve a little further into that subject next week, but for today we're going to wrap it up. Um, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he rose from the dead, then you should also know that our hearts are cleansed by faith. You should also know that no one can be justified by obeying the law. You should also know that every single believer is saved by God's grace, not by anything that we can do, okay? And for the preservation of unity in the body of Christ, let's Let's remember that we all have the same spirit, that we all need to abstain from things that 
pull us away from God and that we should strive to avoid what causes unnecessary offense to one another. Um, for anyone today who maybe you just realized, you know, that, that you're, you're not a part of the body of Christ, but you, you do believe what you've heard here today, don't leave without acknowledging it. You know, if you feel the Holy Spirit leading you to, to receive Christ as your Lord, then you're being called to come up here and confess him publicly before this body of believers and, and to be baptized by immersion as Christ commands. And if you're already an immersed believer and you want to join this local body, we, we offer that opportunity for you today to come up and profess your faith and, and be a part of this body. Or if you just want to ask for prayer, we've had a lot of brave souls that have said, you know what, uh, I need people to pray for me. And they'll come forward and ask, and, and we will be glad to come and lay hands on you and pray over you. Um, just don't pass the opportunity up. Let's stand together as we close. If the Lord's speaking to your heart, as we sing this uh, song, please come forward. Please receive his invitation.